Hello and welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your guest host for this episode, Jim McNamara. I'm a senior firefighter with the FDNY and serve as a human performance advisor for Leadership Under Fire. I'm also the principal author of LUF's Senior Man's Performance Journal. I can share more about that at the end of the episode, but let me introduce our guest. Jerry Smith is a firefighter with the Baltimore City Fire Department, currently assigned to Rescue Company 1. He was previously assigned to Truck Company 15 and entered the fire department in 2004. He grew up in suburban Philadelphia, which is where his fire service career began as a volunteer. He's also a member of the BCFD dive team and serves as a public safety scuba instructor. Jerry was also a member of the Central Maryland Urban Search and Rescue Task Force 2. He holds a bachelor's degree from Loyola University of Maryland. Currently, Jerry is involved with the UL Firefighter Safety Research Institute in their three-year study of fire service residential home size-up and search and rescue operations, serving as a member of the technical panel. Jerry, welcome to this podcast. I'm super happy to, uh, to have you here. Hi, Jim. I'm uh, very excited as well. So it's uh, great to be on with you. It's an honor. Thank you. Jerry, let's start with some background stuff. Why don't you tell us about yourself, your upbringing, and your early life? Sure. I was born in 1979. My family roots come from the city of Philadelphia. My mom and dad was able to uh, fortunately get me to uh, be their only child. That's where we kind of started and lived in the suburbs of the city. Mom and dad were born and raised in Philly. My dad was one of eight big Irish Catholic family. My mom was also an only child, but uh, everybody uh, was all essentially based out of Philly. A lot of summers playing wiffle ball in the alleys with my buddies down there visiting my grandparents, but was uh, fortunate enough to also grow up out in the suburbs and a more single family home, you know, grass, driveway type scenario. Was blessed uh, to have that. My dad was a CPA. He had uh, went to Vietnam after college, came home, and my mother and him uh, wed. And my mom was what we would call a domestic engineer. So she worked <laughs> from home and she kept everything flawless behind the scenes and learned a lot just from my mom in terms of her uh, resiliency and her abilities that she learned just by doing things on her own and, and you know, being persistent and successful in that, especially when, you know, my dad would be at work all day. She, she had to handle everything. So a leak at the house, uh, whatever, something went wrong, she had to take care of it. So I, I saw a lot there from my mother uh, in terms of her abilities that, you know, she may not have a full-time job, but there was a lot of tools and things that I learned from her of how you want to be a very well-rounded person uh, in life. And my dad was more on the very uh, financially strict uh, path being a CPA. So that carried over to how I was raised. Strict Catholic household. Every Sunday church, my schooling certainly followed through with that. Grade school, Catholic school, and then moved into a Jesuit high school as well into a Jesuit college. So that definitely has played a role, I think, in helping me be more well-rounded in the sense of, especially with the Jesuits, the aspect of discipline, uh, maybe to a fault, maybe even to somewhat of an OCD aspect, but it, it's really paid dividends 
uh, long term for me, as well as uh, developing what, what I would say are, are routines and habits, something that I know I heard Bob mention uh, in your last podcast, the value of habits and routines and how beneficial they are. That's great. That's really the old American upbringing. But in regards to your mom, the great Lieutenant Kevin Flanagan from 28 could use a better term. He would he would describe our wives as the deputy chiefs of domestic affairs. <laughs> we, we pretend to be tough guys, but at the end of the day, well, when the deputy chief of domestic affairs calls, you answer and answer quickly. Yes, my dad, my dad still defaults to uh, having to check in with my mom. <laughs> That's a great thing. Let's segue a little bit to your early career, Jerry. What were your early days like in the BCFD? So when I got hired, we had to be firefighter paramedics, something that I'm not now, but we had to in the beginning. And the department hired a lot back then. They were just pumping out classes of firefighter paramedics. So the, the adage of being thrown to the woods was, was right on in our job because you would certainly go to, to school, paramedic school, but then when you went to the field, you had to balance riding a fire truck, but then also riding an ambulance and, and never really in any kind of uh, oriented manner. You come in one day, you're riding the ladder, and you might be getting a kick at the side of the bed at 1 a.m., and you got to go finish the tour on a medic unit because somebody went off. So the, the paramedic part was big for us. It was def definitely a culture shock for me being a suburban kid coming into a city firehouse, and, and the firehouse I was sent to was a very tough neighborhood over in East Baltimore, right? We, we uh, were right at John Hopkins Hospital. And I was very blessed to get there. It was uh, a firehouse unique in the sense it was a one-piece house, two-story, but it was uh, a tiller truck. That was it. No engine, no chief, no medic, just a straight-up tiller truck, something almost out of the past. And it was great. It was uh, just an awesome way to uh, get broken in with the guys and the, the, the neighborhood being dynamic. And even the fact it was, you know, four firemen uh, in that firehouse and it was a very tough neighborhood, drugs, fires, vacant buildings. The, the firehouse was an anchor for that community. And, and the way we really showed that was we kept our bay door up basically eight o'clock in the morning till almost sometimes 11 midnight. Uh, wow. summertime and, and we kept the rig parked out on the street so i mean that was we were just a, it was an open door format for the neighborhood come in come by wave you know whatever the kids needed and it really was just was awesome i, I remember the old guys telling the story they took a run the door didn't close guy ran in stole the tv out of the kitchen and uh when they got back one of the old timers grabbed one of the kids on the corner in the next probably half hour, the TV came walking right back into the kitchen. It was put right back in place. <laughs> so, you know, you had guys that worked in the neighborhood, but it was really about relationships in that neighborhood. And it was, it was great. Uh, we had an actual rookie come uh, right before we got closed. Unfortunately, that firehouse was closed in 2012 due to budget. But uh, the year prior to us closing, we got a rookie, and his father was an FDNY captain. And so, you know, we, we got some hooks to get this kid, heard a lot of great things about him. And when his father first looked up on Google Maps where the firehouse was, he was so excited 
He called his son to say, you're going back in time. You're going to go work the Warriors in the 70s like I did when I got hired. So it That's was good. definitely a throwback in terms of that, that type of era, in terms of busyness, the fires, the shootings, and, and you learn quick, which was a great opportunity to get experience. So the officer core of a unit like that must have been super experienced. Like, think about some of the bosses that you had. Which ones were, were most impactful in your development? It was cool because the battalion that I worked in, which was the second, in all your details, kind of like what uh, Bob Athanas said, when you took your details, they were in battalion, and, and it was all in a very, very busy part of East Baltimore. So the engines or ladders, uh, very like-minded across the board when it came to the chiefs, who all basically had 30 to 40 years. And then you went down to the officers that were probably in that 15 to 20 range, some maybe a little younger, but, but they caught the right time period, which is the 80s and, and more particularly the 90s was still very heavy fire duty in the city. Um, yeah. I would say probably one of the biggest changes was they, they did a lot more occupied work then versus as more recent, we do a lot more vacant work. But the officers on the engines and the ladders, particularly like the captain of five truck, Billy Hughes, my battalion chief, uh, I had Wigman and Hudgens. And then for my officers at the, at the ladder, you had Ellis, Brown, Schmidt, uh, just guys that were just, you know, super dialed in in terms of what the job of the company was, the pride of the company and, and, and being an asset at all times to the chief that he would be that you were the go to company when he looked around or, you know, when he knew you guys were coming, everything felt a whole lot better. Sure. Um, and, and there was a strong competition, too between the officers and the companies uh, and what they instilled in the young guys in terms of, you know, coming to work, you know, relief time was at seven, but you were in 530 cup of coffee, you know, it was ready to go 545 for the guys coming down in the morning. So, you know, just kind of that attention to detail and uh, you know, just, you, you know, being that first one in the door, you know, everything was about, you know, presentation pride, and, and those guys were, were just awesome and, and, and fearless. I mean, you just had other officers. We had one, um, and I still had the fortune to see him the other day at the academy, uh, Lieutenant Yingling, and where he's put his time in. And, you know, you're looking at guys of all, you know, 30-plus years that have all worked in nothing but busy shops, never wanting right. to slow down, you know? Yeah. Your upbringing, like your early years, were very much like mine. You had at least an understanding of what the fire service was. Uh, I had absolutely none. But that that ability to step into something and and kind of learn slow and easy because you're you're surrounded by just extraordinary talent. Which senior men had the most impact on you? Was there any in particular that really just uh, you wanted to be that guy when 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 you became a senior man? Sure. And, and the senior men in our department, uh, I would say they kind of carry two titles. One was our informal senior man position, which was called the first acting man. So that was a seniority based position. Uh, and the most senior members in the house took those four positions on the four shifts. So at that time in 2004, those guys, you know, you waited 20 years to get a first acting position. 
And then the drivers and the tillermen who all work together every shift, you saw a lot of just a mindset of where guys, they knew what each guy was going to do. You know, it didn't have to be communicated. And that obviously just came with time and experience. But uh, Jeff Tosh, Pete Risley, and then even some of the younger guys I got to work with, uh, Matt Coster, Jeff Darby, these were guys that were just all about the simplicity of you come in, you do your job, you keep your mouth shut, and, and there was nothing below you. You know, Jeff Tosh, who had over 20 years as an acting man, you know, Jeff would go out with the broom and, and be sweeping across the street in front of the houses, the steps, getting the garbage out across in the city, uh, in the city street. And, you know, no one told Jeff to do that. That was Jeff knowing that was just the right thing to do from the neighbors to the firehouse to always making the company look good. And I think that's, that was what I learned from the senior men was the company was the the foremost thing. The company always went ahead of any, any person, anything. It was always about the company looking good, you know, and they did that with routine and discipline and, and just knowing your area, you know, knowing, you know, where were the steps in a row home? You know, what was the layout? to the bedrooms, the bathroom, and just, you know, knowing your area uh, and getting there as fast as you could, you know, because uh, it was very competitive with the neighboring companies all wanting to get in for first do work. And that was the one blessing at Truck 15 where we were geographically 80% of the time we were in the front of the building. So that was great in terms of experience there uh, and kind of dealing with that. But, you know, very humble. Guys were, you know, the kitchen table was was a great place. Everybody came down in the morning. They talked. Nobody jumped in their car and ran out right away. Shift change was important. So that that was a big thing that I learned as well from the senior guys. Is you, you've got to talk among your shift and the other shifts because that's that's where so much where the learning and the sharing, you know, came across. Sure. And where did these guys learn? Like, like who broke them in? So, you know, it's funny, one of the, the, the tough trends in our department, which started in the early 70s, was guys came from companies that didn't even exist when I got hired. So when I came in, I would hear about 24 engine, 19 engine, four truck. All these companies were closed, but it was the, the location, the service, and just the type of officers that broke these guys in when they came in, that really was kind of setting, setting that. Um, you know, so very similar to you guys having that period of, 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 you know, the war years and just the amount of service being that additive to the guys. Uh, you know, those, those guys were able to be able to tap in or catch the tail end of that. And then be able to, you know, to bring that over. And it was very informal. It was not something that was written down in a document. It wasn't a book that you read. It was all through conversation. You know, that, that, that was the key. Like you guys talk so much about in your job, the firehouse table and, and talking yeah. with the guys, you know, together was huge. But, you know, that's where, like you said, it just gets passed down uh, through those, you know, through those good companies. Yeah, and and the same kind of thing for us. Uh, everything, you know, evolves, you know, from the great ones. The, the, the things that we do today, 
you know, are, are instilled from them. They set the bar, you know, everything that we are and everything that we aspire to be is, is, is because of them. And was even more extraordinary when we start to get into the, the human performance piece, you know, they intuitively knew that they were being impacted by, by forces that they didn't quite have the ability to, to describe. Uh, and they found traits, you know, to, to work through this. I mean, the more that we reflect back on them, at least for us in New York, uh, we actually heap even more praise on them. They were just that amazing. And it's great. It's great to hear that that you know, your department had a similar type of experience. You have 16 years on the job, and you're the senior firefighter on your shift in in Rescue One. What would be your definition of a senior firefighter? So when I think about the definition when I first came in, and and it's kind of also how I how I grew up through the fire service. My dad being a volunteer, the trainings the guys he would read, what articles, to kind of my perception early on when I got to a lot of the firehouses in Baltimore was time was so critical for a senior fireman. You know, you, you a guy that had 20 years in a busy shop, there was just kind of that, like you said, that, that credibility was there. And that's obviously changed, you know, as we've gotten to closer to today. We don't have those guys anymore like that. So that was probably somewhat of a canned answer, you know, from what you probably hear with other guys will say. But I found that the best, the best senior firefighters are, again, we go back to the selflessness of the company, but also a continuation of humility that they're no better than anybody else. If, you know, they come in. They may have to scrub toilets that day because that's their assignment. They're not telling the young kid to do that. That's their task for the day. So that humility was huge uh, and, and their ability to be open to always constantly learning themselves, which I think was, was, was great. And I remember hearing something Jason had sent out a while ago, and it was referencing a coach. Uh, I think it was Frank Martin. Down, he was down in South Carolina, men's basketball team, and he was asked a question about, you know, how do you train or, or teach some of your kids in terms of their skill level? And he basically said, look, it all starts with, with the attitude. And I think that's what goes to the senior firefighter today is, is really their attitude. You want to have a guy's attitude that is all about being willing, open-minded, and you know, the attitude comes first, everything else will follow. You know, the skill level, the, the technique uh, of how to do something, that will all fall in place. So I think the attitude right away, the humility, that's huge for me. Uh, and then again, you know, never, never putting themselves above anyone else in the company. I always think back to, like I said, Jeff going across the street and sweeping up the trash and the curb you know that that just to me speaks volumes about a guy where where he sees himself you know just the quiet the quiet professional sure i think from from my perspective up here i have to give you two different definitions because if you were a fireman in new york on that tuesday morning like you your world is split into two different worlds before and after in, in the world right. before the, the senior guy was was like God. 
Uh, it was usually someone with a super amount of time, like 30 years. And again, the same kinds of things. They, they made their reputation. Uh, they were impeccable. There was also a structure and a hierarchy that he didn't have to weigh in. A lot of that, a lot of that stuff was solved before he got there. But someone who just carried a tremendous amount of credibility and didn't have to do a lot of leaning. Today, I, I think, you know, for us, we, we're kind of in New York broken into two groups. The group that came immediately after that September morning and the ones that came after the, uh, the hiring freeze. So you have two, basically two big groups that are trying to find their way. There's no totem pole. There's no separation. They're all in that same block. And also a lot of the tools that were available pre 9-11 don't exist anymore. You need a world of finesse to handle things now. I think the guys and gals that we get uh, are absolutely phenomenal. I think they get a bad rap. I think I think I've spoken to that before, and I'll speak about it till the day I die. And they're learning to find their way. But at the end of the day, people come on the show because they, they want to do the right thing, and they'll find their way. And and they need also a little bit of guidance. The imperative for us is the number of pre nine eleven firemen shrink by the month. You know, in a very short order, you won't have any of them left. Um, so it's kind of imperative, like who's who's going to lead them once the real senior people leave, and and that's a that's going to be a very difficult time for a short period as 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 they sort as the firefighters themselves sort it out. But I'm confident that those that have been broken in well will carry on. Those great tribes, and we and we could probably talk about and consider our firehouses as tribes, like like Sebastian Junger talks about. You know, each tribe thinks they are the single best one in the in the profession and, and, and they hold themselves to standards and, and each tribe will find a way to, to develop the new generation of leaders. If I could jump to another one, Jerry, as the senior firefighter on your shift, Jerry, what do you think are the most important tasks and challenges that are unique to senior firefighters today? So I think, you know, task wise, and I remember a quote from when we had John Vigiano down in Bowie's, Maryland, and, or Bowie, sorry, Bowie, Maryland, um, huh. Captain Vigiano spoke. And he was spot on when he talked about training as the stone that shapes the edge of a tool. And that, to me, is the essence of, you know, there is no greater task of a senior man than to teach the younger guys, to get them, re get them ready mentally, physically, tactically for what they're going to encounter. You know, challenge-wise, I think one is, is is that delivery. So, like you were saying, with the younger folks, you know, I'm seeing a ton of college-educated coming in versus when I got hired, most of the guys in my class, it might have been maybe two or three of us that had college educations versus today, the younger folks are well-developed, open-minded, and yes, there, there's more of probably an emotional sensitivity around certain things. One, you know, how we have to speak to them. But I think the media of how we deliver and teach them is critical. You know, as I see so many guys go right to the phone, that's what they're going to default to. How am I going to learn something or, or, or what is this? And, and that's fine. But the challenge is trying to also to get them to understand from the, the historical aspect of your department, you know, why we do things, what was the genesis of it, and, and, and you know, what, what's that critical 
aspect that you need to understand, you know, about that job uh, or, or why we do the things that we do here in Baltimore. And, you know, I think that's one of the, the hard things. And the older guys, like you said, their delivery back in the day, if you weren't doing well, you know, you would certainly hear about it in a number of ways. And, and we have to now, you know, kind of cushion that today because you just can't, you can't do that. You just can't treat people that way. You can't speak to them that way. And, you know, yeah, you may not be an officer if you're a senior man. So there's a little bit of informal latitude there that you might be able to uh, exert or get away with. But I think, like you said, it's, it's going to come down to finding that mutual belief that you both have, the new person and the older person. And here's, here's what it is. And that's all about, again, the company, the mission, and, and just knowing your job. And, and, and I stole another quote from uh, Lindsay Adario when she came and spoke at that same conference with Captain Vidge. And that was, she said, understand your terrain. And I think that's so huge today, basically from a complexity, you could say just not from a physical aspect, but really understanding where you work, the role that you fulfill, and you know, there's always eyes on you. In fact, there's cameras now always on you. And how you have to carry yourself is really critical. And and that's just, you know, that job you could probably say is even more important today and even more complex than it was 20 years ago because of it. So by no means was it any less diminished or or whatnot. Agreed. The training component again is 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 so important because I'll say it again and again, you know, you look in the post 9-11 world, the span, scope, and complexity of responsibility for today's firefighters is just simply insane. You couple that with expanding run totals, the amount of available time to train continues to shrink while our responsibilities right. continue to grow. Uh, Correct. I, there's not enough time to train them to do the things. So much so that for me, I only focus on a very narrow amount of, of areas, uh, simply because, look, if you have time, you prioritize in such a way, and, and that which poses the greatest risk to your, to your guys. But also to speak to the young ones, they have capacity, right? They have capacity to learn. And if you, if you teach them and can teach them in, in a means in which they understand, they'll, they'll grow quickly. Because I was one of those guys. I never worked in the trades. I never touched a tool in my life before I came on this job. But you can practice and you can learn. You know, the world is changing faster than we realize. You know, if, if we don't keep up with it, uh, we will be lost. How has the role of the senior firefighter changed during your, your time? The situation I had, which was quite unique, we go back to the typical senior man in Baltimore in 2004, was, was time. 20, 25 years, and, and you had to wait about 18 to 20 years to get that acting spot. However, we hit a time in that mid to later 2000s where promotion for your, your guys that were getting ready to take on that senior role shifted. They were no longer waiting to get the acting position and instead, the promotion kind of swept through. And, and so what started was we began to have a huge gap of what you thought would be your next senior men 
they're all now moving up to lieutenants and those senior officers are going to captain. So my situation was here I am with only four and a half years in the fire department and I fall into a first acting position on my truck company. <laughs> so, so, right. So, you know, what the hell do I know? Quickly, the school of hard knocks came and that, that unfortunately was, it was a big part of my, my teaching and my learning in that phase. I mean, certainly the officers and the other guys like my tillerman and driver who had more time, they were huge. But when it came to when I, so the one thing unique about a department is the acting men, when the Lieutenant takes off, they take the seat. So that that's the whole premise of the first acting in Baltimore is that it's an informal way to get your younger firemen to move up into a leadership role, how to run a company, how to fill in when the lieutenant's off. I think there's a lot of benefit from something like that. And, you know, we even expand that to that you have to be able to do every position in the fire department, pump apparatus, drive and tiller. Again, those are all acting out of title. So there always was an informal push when you were a new fireman, you had to keep climbing the mountain of, I need to get approval for this. I need to get approval for this. So that was an informal teacher in that we had that methodology of you had to learn different jobs. So you learned more of the job that way, which was huge. The problem was you could get there pretty quick and be lacking some of the operational experience. And that was my case. I had early on gone to a couple fires that to this day, I wish I could get back in a heartbeat that, you know, involves entrapment outcomes were not favorable on our end. And it just was, you know, I just had not known, just had not been put in that position. And so here I am, you know, riding the front seat, you know, pulling up to a fire and, and you know, now it's my job to force the door and initiate the search and obviously also manage the company. And it's all three senior guys, you know, around me, but I, I'm the acting lieutenant in that. So it's definitely a school of hard knocks. Again, it was very much a seniority-based position, which is it's just not the case anymore. You know, it's, it's rare to have the guys that are lifetimers that stay at the senior position. You know, a few guys will stay that first acting their entire career. Uh, we just had our senior man from the rescue retire last year, and, and, and Bill you know, he was like very similar to Bob Athanas, multiple years in that company, in that position. And today, the younger guys want to promote. That's what they're looking for. They want to move up. So a little bit of the luster, I would say, has fallen off that senior position. But you had mentioned it, the, the complexity of what you have to do with your expanded responsibilities either if you're acting lieutenant or just being the senior man of the company, you know, handling technology, handling the, 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 the newer types of runs, responsibilities. A lot of the old guys are saying hell with it. They actually yeah. turn down the position and they're looking for the younger kid with the 10, 11 years. And they'll say, you know what, let him do it. He's got to get on that computer. He's got to do these reports. You know, we've got to manage all this. So unfortunately, it, it's gone a little bit where I've seen some of our older guys shy away 
from maintaining that position. And they're just looking for the old simplicity of, hey, I just want to come in, take my runs and, and go home. So sure. it's tough. I mean, it, it's, it's tough. You know, it requires someone to be open-minded. You've got to be able to adapt and you got to be able to be open to changes. And that's just hard. Yes. And it also cries out that we should probably organizationally do things to prepare these people for these these challenges. In addition to just the training for, for the regular stuff we do day to day, challenge to prepare these leaders for that next step. Yes, the young the young promote because they have to monetarily. They, they have no choice. Their pensions right. are that bad. But somebody is going to have to lead these companies and somebody's going to have to take the ball and push people and drive people. Uh, also counsel them from time to time. And, and, you know, we should do things organizationally to help them. It's in our best interest. It develops a better product. And we also develop better firefighters. The challenges are there. Uh, it's about finding those creative solutions to meeting challenges. Listeners, I'd like to take a moment to share that the ebook, Fire Psych Mental Toughness and the Valor Mindset on the Fire Ground, is now available for purchase on the Leadership Under Fire website. Click shop in the menu in the top right corner of the page and secure your copy for just $15. For those who don't know, FirePsych introduces and advances mental performance concepts and skills using the Valor Mindset Framework. The central objective of FirePsych is to provide fire officers and firefighters with an improved understanding of human performance under operational stress while introducing concepts and skills that enhance physiological function, self and situational awareness, and tactical resilience. When originally published in 2014, it joined a lengthy list of books that sought to enhance fireground performance and safety. However, it was the first book to exclusively examine the mental aspects of fireground performance. Dr. Mike Askin and Eric Nuremberg wrote the book in Leadership Under Fire's formative years and the book has served as a primer for human performance optimization efforts in the FDNY, the Milwaukee Fire Department, and several other fire rescue departments. Sure, I'm gonna segue over to um, your operating environment and civil unrest. I think it's fair to say that Baltimore is one of the most violent cities in the United States, and there are innumerable socioeconomic sources of instability that impact the community and the Baltimore City Fire Department. What is it like being a firefighter in a city where resources and safety net are consistently at capacity and yet commonly subject to even more budget cuts? So I'll just preface saying, you know, I'm not I'm not speaking as a representative here of the fire department. This is just me giving my honest, you know, opinion, just private citizen and the, the funny story that I share with some of the younger guys is when I had to go to my company right out of the academy, they send you out so you can go meet your shift, your officers and whatnot. And when I walked in my first day, the first thing I was told was, kid, don't get comfortable here. They've been trying to close this since 2000. <laughs> and so the tone is, you know, it's a systemically negative one that unfortunately has been tough for our guys from a morale end of battling company closures. And then in the mid to later 2000s, we, we hit furloughs and brownouts. And so that's very tough because 
you know, with the competing priorities, police, declining city population, education. We have a consent decree. We're number three in the U.S. on per student spending. You know, there's only so many pots. And so it's very difficult with that. And the best way to really, I think, to look at this, Jim, is, is what if I went to the leadership under fire hierarchy, the paradigm, the, the, the image that LUF has that says at the bottom, technical, tactical, physical, intellectual, psychological, emotional, and then moral at the top. Working in that type of environment, you can see where, you know, where you can control and help and where are things that you just, you just can't climb the mountain to get that high. And I think what's very hard for our guys is the moral, emotional, the psychological, that's been the toughest over when you're operating systemically with that, you know, the lack thereof. And where I think they've done a good job in tough times is the physical and the technical and tactical. Getting firehouse gyms, redoing kitchens, getting new apparatus, getting better equipment. But it's almost kind of a game of whack-a-mole because you just can't move all those balls forward at the same time. You can get one or two up at a good place, next thing you know, another spot's opening up that you now have to go after. And yeah. then that other spot falls behind. Yeah. You know, even for, for us in New York, you know, we're still subject to the same type of nonsense. You know, when literally two days after the, the, the towers were hit, you know, in, in the middle of chaos, the city tried to close firehouses under the cover of chaos. You know, and then in 2003, they closed six firehouses. And then just shortly after that, they cut the salaries of our, our young, our fine young firefighters to $25,000 a year. I mean, there are impacts on the folks who do this, especially the young. The older you get, the more cynical you become. You just laugh at it because you know it's posturing. But talking like that is beyond irresponsible, especially when, when, when people have taken a job like ours, which, you know, certainly in the early portions of your, your career, doesn't pay well at all. You have a very small pension, and these folks are willing to risk themselves for people they don't know. You don't mess around with that. So it's 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 a lot of it is a game, and it's also a risk. There's a risk because the people who are who are most often impacted by fire, well, they're not wealthy folks, right? And they're, they're not the people who, who live in, in in really nice, you know. 10,000 square foot apartments. Um, they're people who live very tough lives and, and deserve, they deserve better. I'm gonna jump again to another question, Jerry. What is it like operating at fires and emergencies in neighborhoods that are plagued by constant violence? The, the fire department, I will say to our benefit, a true nod to, to our guys is that they really don't let the mission ever ever sway, you know, as, as much friction there might be from the department to their firehouse, you know, not having a shower that's been redone in 20 years. They come in and they stay on point. And, and I think, you know, when you work in the neighborhoods, the firehouse is so critical and heavily relied on by the community that the violence 
if anything's ever directed towards us, it's, it's incidental. You know, it's just wrong place, wrong time. Uh, and that's not to say, though, EMS, you know, they've certainly, you know, they have run into some some tough calls at times dealing with patients and things like that. But overall, the fire department is in excellent standing in the city of Baltimore. And, and that buys us so much. I mean, we do not we do not wear body armor in any of these tough neighborhoods with the shootings and everything. And there's a vulnerability that those citizens see that goes a very, very long way. You know, I, I was making a joke earlier about, you know, our firehouse over at Truck 15 in East Baltimore. And I remember one day uh, I was putting my gear on and we had taken a run and I just totally had a, a brain fart and left my helmet out on the fifth wheel of the tiller truck. And we get back, next thing you know, I'm really in a tizzy. I can't find my helmet. And just a couple minutes later, here comes a neighbor. That helmet fell off two blocks down the street. Somebody picks it up, they walk it in the station. And, wow. you know, I just, you know, I just couldn't, you know, nothing more says that. And I would say we have kind of an unwritten code that, you know, we, we get the access to houses and conditions that are very difficult and maybe we'll say illegal. The goal was to pay attention to the patient, the hazard, the fire, and that's it. But when it comes to fire duty, especially post-2015, it's not like we weren't burning in 2000, in the mid-2000s, but the fires and murders all have been on an uptick post the 2015 Freddie Gray civil unrest. And I hate to say it, they, they go hand in hand. The violence or homicide rate, which is just continuing to increase, the fires are right there with it, especially last year. The, the, the amount of arson we saw in unexpected neighborhoods and then just the, the short duration of arson in, in, you know, a one square mile, you know, 24 fires in one week in that one square mile. The problem is that a lot of it comes down to occupancy. And when I talk to some of the older guys, you know, the 90s, the fire duty was heavy. There was certainly vacant work, but it was also a well-balanced occupied work. I can tell you in the last five, six years, the fires we go to are predominantly vacant buildings. And on top of it, we go back to the same buildings, six, seven times. Yeah, last year we had two competing mattress companies. They burned each store at least four to six times, hand over hand, located on the one on the east side of the city, one on the west side of the city. And, you know, you're, you're going back to the same building a half a dozen times. The holes are all there. You just got to cut all the plywood back off and, and do it. So repetitive fires, the amount of vacant fires are the big things. And our building stock's old. We're an old city, just like New York City. You know, we had three major collapses in 18 months on my shift about two years ago. We were lucky nobody got killed. A couple guys went off for about eight, nine months. But these guys were literally surfing floors going down. Uh, or having burning floors coming on top of them. And again, all vacant work, but they're occupied in the sense of that, you know, we've got people 
in them due to uh, our high drug activity. And then, you know, another kind of like maybe something that was retro to the old war years, but just last year I can think of on two accounts, we're on the roof cutting holes and he just looked down the block and there's the next one lit off. <laughs> and you just, you just, you know, you make a quick call on the radio to the chief, he puts you up, you go down, you grab your tools, you run down the street, you go to the next one. <laughs> there are so, very few people who, who experience that anymore. That's yeah, incredible. so that's that's yeah, so that's still still relevant here, unfortunately. But in terms of you know operational experience and, and working in vacants, it's still there. It's just still a strong presence of uh, of work for our, our West and East Side companies. The, the, the yeah. hospitals, there's a couple big anchors in the city, and the hospitals are trying to expand campuses, knock down these vacants. Uh, you know, when I worked at Truck 15. In our little two some square miles, we had over 750 vacant buildings just in ours. So it was a playground. It was a playground, though, for training. And today yeah. you can't, you, you just can't go out anymore and start cutting holes in a roof anymore right. like you used to. You know what I mean? So that's tough. But, but you know, the, the violence part is certainly is eye-opening, you know, when you're, especially when I was a new young kid coming out of the suburbs, you know, I'll never forget, I, you know, I come in Christmas morning, we get sent out for an investigation, Christmas morning, 6 a.m., you know, three Molotov cocktails right through the front window, two through the back windows of a house of a full family, mother, father, three kids. And it's just, you know, it's just a very surreal and, you know, just humbling experience. And when you get your car and you drive home to your suburban house, and what you have, you've got to be very grateful and thankful. I can tell you that. Sure, absolutely. In that same vein, Jerry, uh, Baltimore has experienced civil unrest several years ago, and many fire departments across the nation are now experiencing similar unrest. What were some of the lessons learned from you and your department's experiences in 2015? When I spoke to a couple of close, trusted friends that worked the Monday night of the uh, unrest. I, you know, some of us were, were never the, the bride, but were the bridesmaids. I worked uh, the, the, the day after and the day before the big night of the riots and fires that we had that Monday uh, back in 2015. And when the, the companies went out that night, obviously the unrest was, un, was unexpected. And you know, you're you're now saying, you know, we're now facing something that we had not seen in our city since the 60s. So the companies were, were you know, basically going on after or using just the normal mental template of this is a normal day at work, a normal basic dwelling fire, yet we're going to add a, a human element that's a threat now. And I think talking to guys, a mindset has to be shifted, and then just kind of a, a physical awareness and tactical awareness of when you're responding and operating to these type of emergencies, where now you have a very fluid and dynamic threat environment that literally is of a human opposing will, right? We're just not showing up going to a building fire on a Saturday and it's sunny and 70, right? We're now dealing with other issues, the danger is much higher. 
And so we, we can't use that same normal template that we have, like things are under normal conditions. And I think that's where the adjustment of like just committing to a fire, you know, talking to my one friend, you know, they're, they're pulling into the fire block, you know, so you're, you're thinking, okay, dwell in fire, let's go and let's lead off. Let's get a, a water supply secured. But, you know, if they took over that intersection and start putting hose in the street, they're now quickly met with guns in the face and are be told, hey, you charge those hoses, you go in, you're getting shot. So I think one aspect is the guy is having to take a real tactical pause to looking around of the environment of I have a house on fire, but I, I, I've got to consider now a couple other things where I just can't come in and take over the whole scene like I typically would at a normal dwelling fire. Does that make sense? It does. What's your policy with, with police response? In, in times like that, are they automatically attached to you? In my experience, the fire department is typically the first on scene. So shooting, stabbings, whatever, we're very comfortable basically operating without police presence. Now, do they come? Sure but there's typically a delay. Now I can tell you the night that that event happened, most of our units never had any kind of force protection or police with them. So that's an adjustment and a reality. You know, when it's, when it's an unforeseen event, guys were not able to come back. Like our firehouse downtown with the unrest there had to be evacuated. And then the other location up near the Mondawmin Mall, 52 engine, you know, they had to abandon their quarters basically by three o'clock in the afternoon that Monday. And they had to do all, all of their responding out of a neighboring station. They, they never were able to get back there. So, you know, those are just some of the things that are, are difficult. Again, this is unplanned, unforeseen, right? It's a lot different if you know you got to play in protest that we can yeah. get a task force and, and have all that. This is, you know, shit's hitting the fan. And, and, and we're, we're making this up on the fly, you know, and, and, you know, our guys at one point were going to fires. They, they didn't even have air bottles because they, there was no one to come out to fill them, nor could they get them filled. That's crazy. That's great. Did you guys, um, after the fact, did you, did you write down any best practices and, and formalize anything or, or do it informally? If it's informal, it's at the company or battalion level in those areas, nothing formally. Uh, came down to our fire department. When we had the uh, recent threat a couple weeks ago over that weekend when, man, all the cities were getting clobbered, Philly, Minneapolis, New York, uh, we had a potential for a, a Monday event. And so we, they did do some planning ahead of time, which was good, extra units, extra staffing, things like that. But I would probably say out of the most simplistic things, you know, they tell they, as a fireman, the one thing you always learn is you always carry a tool, you never leave a tool. And when you have a situation like this, this is a situation where you got to realize you may have to leave the tools and get the hell out of Dodge. And yeah. that's difficult. And yeah. that's that was some guidance that we did recently get through our safety office that I thought was worthwhile. It, it was worth a good point out that, look, you got hose in the street, we got ladders up, we, we just may have to leave them, you know, and that, but that's going to be very difficult 
for a fireman to make that adjustment. But it was a good point. And I think one of the good takeaways uh, from where our guys had to operate, you know, or may have to operate. Yeah. Like the, the great ones dealt with a lot of unrest and, and some of the things that they taught still are, are relevant today, but, but that's only if you've had the, the good fortune to be in a unit where they pass down those lessons. Like, right. You know, how many folks are left on the job who've, who've seen large scale unrest, you know, chaotic nights of violence here and there. Yeah. That, that's, that's one thing. Uh, but we certainly, we have a lot of learning to do to catch back up on that slide deck because uh, a lot of folks simply don't have that slide deck, and it, it's 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 a, it's a threat. It's a real threat. Does the the stress of the environment ever impact your life outside the job? My wife would say yes. <laughs> I think for me, when I come home, um, and it's happened a handful of times, I'll I'll be walking in the door with still a level of intensity or energy. That just comes from when you're, you know, when you're at work, you know, which you're walking around with and what you're just waiting all the time and going out the door that it can, it can sometimes for me either come in the form of, again, intensity that could be from anger, negativity. And my, my wife has a pretty good reset with me and she'll just say, look, go right back outside, take the dogs for a walk and we'll try this all over again. <laughs> And yeah. uh, it's good, and I need that. But but also, too, turning off the job a lot when I come home. And it's very hard today with our phones and the different apps. Guys always want to stay plugged in. And, sure, I'm all about fires and, and, and want to know what's going on. But, you know, it's been very beneficial to move into, like, to like some calming or de-escalation for myself physically, mentally, and woodworking and, and scuba diving, swimming. Those outlets have been just huge for me. But yeah, without a doubt, I've come home. And uh, again, I'm still kind of carrying that intensity or frustration. I need a little reset. So my wife helps me out with that. Yes, and and she has the skill set and the knowledge to do that. I would give the answer that the current amount of violence and stuff doesn't faze me because it's actually nothing compared to when I was growing up here in this city in in the 70s and 80s. You know, as bad as it is now, sure. it's nothing compared to what life was. The one thing that, you know, the post 9-11 world, I did not handle well. Um, and we got through it and all of that. Yes, we're functioning and stuff. But uh, I took a lot of that home for a lot of years. Uh, and again, I didn't have the, 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 the tools and the skills that we've learned since, you know, since we all got together on this venture, this voyage. I have to say that there was a there was a price attached to that, and uh, again, you can't change what's happened, but uh, it, it's a lesson for the for the young ones now who are dealing with stuff that you know there there are tools that you can use to better manage that stress, uh, because the worst thing that you can possibly do is to take it home with you. You can't allow all that damage at, at work to come home. You also can't carry it with you. Uh, when you're at work. I mean, I think, you know, compounding that further, I think of times, you know, when I made mistakes and I, I carried that for years as well. That was, uh, I, it was kind of eating it. The whole cumulative picture kind of ate at me for a lot of years. And uh, I sure wish I could get a reset on that. But again, uh, it, it's history and, and we've learned a hell of a lot since. And the goal now is hopefully we can share that and 
and save others from the same fate? You know, it, it wasn't so much the fires and emergencies for me as to the point you hit home was the the negative mental aspect of of beating myself up. Like you said, if I if I didn't do something well, screwed up, fear of what the other guys on the job were thinking about me. That was a big one. But to the whole concept of this conversation, it's working in an environment and you know for a large part the fire department where the constraints resources budget and the tough morale of you know feeling that you guys are you know cared about and being looked after from the highest of the levels that systemic negativity that's what you're fighting and, and that's what you're seeing in the firehouse as well like you said or those guys or yourself coming in, being disgruntled because of the system, something you can't control, but not not realizing you have to let that go. Yeah, yeah, well said, well said. Thank you for tuning in. As mentioned earlier, I author the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. The digital journal is sent out every other Tuesday to share human performance content that provokes thought, generates discussion, and fosters self-improvement, both professionally and personally. LUF reinvigorated my commitment to lifelong learning. I'm hopeful that my performance journal is a valuable resource for leaders who are in pursuit of optimal human performance. Here's how you can sign up to receive the LUF Senior Man's Performance Journal. Visit leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address to join our newsletter. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.